Hi, this is Mike. I was just calling to see if that job that you offered was still available. Yes. The security guard. I will take anything. This place was huge in the 80s with the kids. They shut it down years ago. The owner's just not ready to let it go yet. I will work and you will sleep. I understand. to do is keep your eyes on the monitor. Welcome to Freddy Fazbear's, where fantasy and fun come to life. Okay. You must be a new security guard. Can I uh, help you, officer? Have you met them yet? Met who? Them. Missing. The police searched Freddy's top to bottom. Hello? They never found them. That's <laughs> why the place shut down. Hello, and welcome to the Movie Broadcast. I'm your host, Rob Wallace, and as always, I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host, Mr. Rob Daniel. And as always, it is a huge delight to be here. So, Mr. D, what are we talking about today? Well... We are going to be talking about the sublime into the, well, yeah, whatever. Uh, so we're going to start off talking about our top five films at the London Film Festival. So we'll just give a quick rundown of those because I think pretty much all of them we're going to be doing longer episodes on if we haven't already talked about them on the previous episode. And then we're going to go into Five Night at Freddy's, which I feel slightly guilty about because... I kind of forced us into watching this one, so um, so yeah. <laughs> but that's still to come, so shall we start off with our top five at the London Film Festival? In ascending order? So reverse order, so number five yeah, up to one? Do, yeah, just that. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. So we don't open with a showstopper. Do one each, or do you want to do your five and my five, or how uh, do you want to do it? Let's do, let's do one each, because we'll probably sync up, I'm guessing. Cool. <laughs> okay, well, my number five is... And that was very, very presumptuous of me that you were going to let me go first. He gave me such a look. A look of rage. <laughs> so my number five is Eileen, which is the Thomas and Mackenzie Anne Hathaway movie that I talked about on the previous episode. It's like a B-movie throwback, but there are lots of different things in there. It is a black comedy. It's a very, very moving study of trauma, I think. It looks amazing. It's all very, very wintry. It's has a lot to say about misogyny in there, particularly misogyny during the 60s and how that just seeps into all of society. You could say that not too much has changed from then till now. It has really amazing performances. Thomas and Mackenzie is great as Eileen and Hathaway is great as a psychiatrist that she falls in love with because Eileen works at a juvenile detention centre. Shay Wiggum plays her abusive father. He is... As good as he always is, to be honest. So, and I think Eileen gets released on the 1st of December. So, I would strongly recommend that people go and see Eileen, which was my number five at the London Film Festival. I didn't see Eileen, and I can't remember why. Um, 
You want me to tell you? What? Yes. Because you could be asked. That's, that's, that's fine. That's terrible. In all fairness, I, it, I, I did get all my reviews written up this year, so actually... What it was, was Rob had seen a bunch of movies and as is absolutely understandable at the LFF, there are some times when you think, I just haven't got another film in me today and I would rather use that time to get some reviews written up, particularly for a film that's coming out in about a month anyway. So uh, that was Rob's decision. Completely understandable. <laughs> it wasn't that he just couldn't be asked. Although I am glad that I saw it because I thought it was a very good film indeed. I am planning on seeing it on December 1st. So yeah. that's... My uh, fifth favourite film of the festival was Saltburn. Ah, interesting. Which we did talk about on the previous episode, but why is it your fifth favourite film? It's uh, kind of a, a very twisted, mixed genre, social satire, psychosexual thriller, very funny, very dark, very well acted. Yeah, so if you, you possibly heard us talking about it, hopefully more eloquently on the previous pod. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was, I found it incredibly entertaining. And yeah, in terms of the film, I actually just found singly the most entertaining at the festival. It's either that or one that's slightly further up the list. I had a real laugh with this film. This is Emerald Fennell, who did Promising Young Woman. It'll be interesting to see if this gets any awards, love. While I think it's as good as Promising Young Woman, it's not as zeitgeisty, I don't think. This one is more of an eat the rich type film. Yeah, sort of riot club yeah. with the servant. Yeah. And it seems much more British than international and Promising Young Woman seemed like a much more international movie. I think this one might get BAFTAs, but not Oscars, do you think? I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair shout. Yeah. It's a good film, though. And it is genuinely funny the whole way through. And there's a couple of surprising images in there that have stayed with me. So on to my number four. Well, my number four is Saltburn. So, <laughs> yeah, so we're, obviously we just talked about that. And if you want to hear us talk about it more, as Rob said, it's on the previous episode. My number four, and I think we also talked about this on the previous episode, is May-December. Ah, interesting. So, yes, we did talk about it, um, but why is it your number four? Because it's an incredibly knotty, you know, well-judged dramatisation of victimhood and culpability and all done in the Todd Haynes melodramatic mode. Great performances, difficult subjects, but I don't, not like a hugely... It's not like you'd go and say, oh, that's a really difficult film, as in, like... But it is. It's challenging without being... Yeah, it's interesting, that, because it is about child abuse. So Julianne Moore is married to someone that she had an affair with when they were underage. The way that that is dealt with, I thought, was was very grown up. It was a very mature film in terms of not being judgmental, but still having a moral centre that said, there is clearly something wrong happening here, but we're not going to provide you with one answer. We're going to provide you with, actually, I think it has to be said, very well done characters um, and very well realised characters. And you make up your own mind. I think this one could have Oscar love in the way that Saul yeah. probably won't. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you've got Julianne Moore, Natalie Portman... Kind of joint leads. I mean, who would you give actress and supporting actress to in terms of nominations? Probably, and I think if Natalie Portman gets nominated, she has to get nominated in the Best Actress category. She's the de facto lead in terms of, like, she's the audience um, surrogate. Mm. I'd go the other way. I'd say that because she's the audience surrogate, she's the one that kind of guides you through. But the focus of the film is Julianne Moore. I'd say that she'd be Best Actress and Natalie Portman would be Best Supporting Actress, but... I think Charles Melton's probably... I think his name's Charles Melton. is probably a lock for Best Supporting Actor. 
Oh, in terms of a nomination, yeah. definitely, yeah. Yeah, he was great. He plays the husband. It will be interesting to see how the nominations crumble, because you could be right, it could be that they go, actually, Natalie Portman, they see her because she is the audience anchor, they see her. But then again, in some ways, she does things that the audience also has, I think, has to wrestle with. So, um, God, it's, it was a good film, that. It was a five-star film, that. Anyway, what if we can move on to my number three? So my number three is May-December, and uh, yeah, so we've just thought about that one. <laughs> So, what's your number three? Especially because Eileen just thrown off your rankings somewhat. <laughs> so just like, well, if you think that my rankings have to vibe with yours, then I suppose they have. <laughs> my number three, and I wasn't sure whether to put this at three or four, and again, it's a film we've discussed previously, Killers of the Fire Moon. Rightio. Yeah, that's one. That was kind of the focus of the last episode. Well, spoiler alert... That doesn't appear in my top five. Wow. Yeah. I say, yeah, I, I was trying to figure out whether that was going to be my third or my fourth. On further reflection, it may drop down to fourth, but I'm, yeah, I'm comfortable mm. being on there. Yeah, indeed. So what was it about the film that meant it had to go into your top five? I think it's a combination of the epic scope, the great performances and across the board, DiCaprio, Lady Gladstone, Robert De Niro, and the fact that it was grappling with something that is truly ugly. Which again, yes, it's another film about complicity. Yeah, I just, <laughs> I just love that not only is Scorsese still making films at age ninety, he's eighty. Eighty, sorry, God. But from your lips to God's ears, may he still be yeah, making no, films at 90. ninety? And I guess, yeah, if you're still making films at eighty, you probably, despite what Tarantino says, you probably don't want to be resting on your laurels. No, I don't think it is. And nobody could accuse Scorsese of that. No, not at all. Now, this one was in my top five until I remembered Saltburn and thought, you know what, I actually think that Saltburn just moves it out. And there was something about the Englishness of Saltburn that I did respond to. You said, so you're saying that this is coming from a man who's one of his favourite films, if not his favourite films, if. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Yes, I mean, yeah, the type. Yeah, Killers of the Flower Moon is number six for me. I think it's a great movie. I would definitely watch it when it goes onto Apple. Probably won't go see it again at the cinema. I feel that that one was enough, but it would be good to watch it again. Where I can give an intermission, and we were saying before the podcast that The Guardian today have done a story about how View and I think another chain are bringing back the intermission for longer movies. Yeah, I think that's right. And also, I think, yeah, I think not just from the perspective of obviously audience stretch your legs, prevent longer. But also, just you make it an experience again. What's mm. the, you know, and obviously you can, you know, as we just, you literally, you're just saying there, you can give yourself an intermission while watching it at home. But just the ability to get up and stretch your legs and let's all go to the lobby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's what they were talking about in this piece in The Guardian, that if you're watching a three and a half hour movie, it becomes more like a theatre experience. Yeah. And no one thinks, oh, that's a bit odd that they've all stopped at the theatre. I mean, there is a slight difference in terms of what well, they're doing it live. So they need a break as well. But so does the audience, I think. I mean... Uh, yeah, I need to go through the loo, having just had an extra-large sugary drink. And then I need <laughs> an opportunity to buy another extra-large sugary drink. I think it's also the fact that it's, for me, Killers of the Flower Moon sagged in the middle. And it's like, well, would it have sagged in the middle if there was an intermission? If I had had uh, the opportunity for 15 minutes to get up and stretch my legs and kind of think about what I'd seen and then go back in for the second half, would I have thought that sagged in the middle? I don't know, but I will know when I watch it on telly and stop it halfway through to make a cup of tea. But for me, though, the reason why it didn't quite make my top five is because I think there is a flaw to the film, and that flaw is the Lily Gladstone character, the way that the film just doesn't really get into her mindset half as much as it does the Leonardo DiCaprio and the Robert De Niro characters. And it just seemed odd that did, because they made so much about the fact that they changed the story away from White Saviour, that they changed it 
so that Leo wasn't playing the FBI guy who comes to town and saves everyone. So there is a danger that you misrepresent history, but I just thought, she's a cipher. She's not really a character as much as the others, so that is a flaw. It doesn't uh, ruin the film, but I thought it was a flaw anyway. But yes, that's an interesting one for number three. So into number two, Poor Things. <laughs> we might finally have met Bone. Uh, so Poor Things, which we didn't talk about on the previous podcast. This is the Emma Stone, Yorgos Lanthimos film. A bizarre, Gilliam-esque, steampunk, Victorian epic of, again, feminism, sexual discovery, male-female relationships. It's a black comedy. It's, I thought it was quite brilliant. And it was hilariously funny as one of my funniest moments of the year in a film. But I think we'll be talking about this more in January when it gets a general release. Yeah. Well, yeah, my uh, my second favourite from the festival, Starbaker. <laughs> <laughs> Which we didn't talk about on the previous episode, but I think of all the writing that we did at the London Film Festival, your review of Starbaker might be the best. <laughs> <laughs> it is genius in its brevity. <laughs> so look up Rob's review of Starbaker, just so that they know what we're talking about. Give a quick description of what Starbaker is. Set in the 70s, it's about a family, uh, dad, mum and kid, living in Yorkshire. Uh, the mum's played by Morford Clark, who um, you might know from... What's the film called? St. Maud. St. Maud, that's the one. And Matt Smith, who you might plays the dad, and you might know him for some stuff. He's been in a few He's things. He's been in a few things. An advert for a range of clothes, I believe, right yes. now. <laughs> and it's a folk horror and it's based on a book, and it starts off with a really nice, well-judged, even tone, and some wonderful cinematography, and then um, makes a dramatic choice, or there's a dramatic development, that is obviously just it's intended to be creepy, but it, there's a very thin line between creepy and funny, mm. and it definitely falls on the funny side of the line. Everything from that point kind of tonally goes a bit off the rails. <laughs> It does. And if you didn't quite pick up on the sniggers that we had when Rob said Starbaker, this is not his number two, I don't think. No. Uh, <laughs> but, sorry, just, we just need to put a moratorium on folk horror. Folk horror is kind of done for the moment, right? Because everyone keeps doing folk horror and it's always the same. It's never as good as the things that they are really, really ripping off. This is another one that's set in the 70s. Yep, yeah, well done. You got the period detail right. You got the visuals right. It all looks like it was shot on 16mm film or something. But like Ennis Men, so what? I've seen all this before. I, I, I've literally seen this from things that were major in the 70s and the early 80s. You're bringing nothing new to the table here. And there is an interesting story shift about 15 minutes in that genuinely took me by surprise. And I thought, okay, well, this is pretty interesting. And then it does the story shift that Rob mentioned. And at first it seems to be this little kind of weird interlude. And then you realise, no, that is actually the story now. And as Rob said, there is a very... Very, very thin line between creepy and funny. And if creepy and funny are done together, sometimes it can be great. Because, you know, there's nothing better than a nervous giggle in a horror film. When it's an unintentional laugh. <laughs> it's that you can't then stop doing. It's like, oh, no, that kind of sported, didn't it? Um, that was a mistake you did that. And uh, yes, which is a shame because I love St. Maud. St. Maud was just... Again, I just think it's one of the best films of the last 10 years. Everyone's good in it. It's just... Morphe Clark is great in it. 
Matt Smith can do a very, very good Yorkshire accent. I can't remember the woman who plays Morphe Clark's sister, but she was good in it as well. And it, it, that's the thing, everyone looks era-appropriate as well. Like, you know, the faces fit. And the old cars look good, and the old telephone boxes, because they've not got a phone in their house, and all these kind of things. It's like, yeah, this is all good, but... Pfft. It's just another folk horror film that's like, yeah, kind of saw that coming at the very beginning and you've done nothing else with it. And there was a film actually that I saw at Fright Fest called The Moors that even though that was two hours and was over long. Um, and didn't know how to end. Yes, because you saw it, didn't you? Had an ending that I think was clearly a reshot ending just to give it a horror ending and was really weird because they clearly couldn't get the main actor back into it. So it was all kind of done with voiceover. It's just... It was botched by the ending, but I thought that The Moors was a more interesting film than Starvaker, even though it didn't have big stars in it. But uh, yeah, so anyway. So what was your number two, Ron? Poor Things. Poor Things. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it was actually Starvaker. What? <laughs> Poor Things is probably, it's, it's actually certainly the film from the festival I'm most looking forward to rewatching mm. Because it's this fantastical, lurid, grotesque. You mentioned Gilliam, you know, Gilliam-esque. There's also a bit... It's also a touch kind of Wes Anderson in terms mm. of how well, you know, how meticulously it's constructed. Absolutely. Very explicit. Very funny. But Emma Stone, in particular, is amazing. Yeah, she is. But so is, you know, um, Willem Dafoe and Mark Ruffalo and uh, Rami Youssef. And, yeah, it's delirious. It is a delirious film. And I had an absolute blast with it yeah me too and in, if doing a double bill between that and salt burn would be yeah would be yeah, they are of a type that'd be great yeah another thing about it is that in some ways it's very close to the kind of erotic novels like emmanuel and the, mm. and the story of O, which you watch now and they just seem really really male chauvinist and it's like if you just slightly move the lens over there then you have this really interesting other story that even though little is left of the imagination in terms of the sex scenes they are very explicit i was quite surprised at some of them it still seems like a story of female empowerment and it doesn't seem like slut shaming and a lot of the things from the 70s are of these erotic she went on a voyage of self-discovery and then discovered and like then, yeah, exactly and it's like, <laughs> she went on a voyage of self-discovery then discovered that was wrong yes and discovered that the best thing is to get married to someone at the end and uh, just not ever ever talk about that again <laughs> because it was all so shameful if you take away the shame from it it actually becomes a much more interesting story I'm reading the book right now as well uh, it was a book I think it was about 2012 the book was published and the book is really good um, you had you had me when you were talking about the book until you told me it had pictures and uh, it does I'm sorry Rob I believe in the oral tradition of storytelling <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you are killers of the flower moon on this one Rob is Mr. Audible um, I read this you didn't read it Rob you listened to it I had someone read it to me yeah. Yeah, I had someone read it to you in a mellifluous tone but actually I think and this is very very presumptuous of me but I think that your number one film might be the same as my number one film it's a film that's based on a book that you have on Audible, I believe, but you've yet to listen to. Yes, I. Yeah, that might be one I'm more likely to read than listen to because I usually listen to things while walking about in my, you know, doing performing my everyday life, and I don't know if I want to walk around listening to that just while I'm walking to the coffee shop. Or it would be incongruous. I think. I think it's one that you do need to focus on. I mean, you could just you know, lay down and listen to it, but if I was going to lay down and listen to it at that point, I'd just read the book. Yeah. Like that's. Yeah, I'd say that trying to do two things at once while listening to the audible version of this book would be a mistake. But what are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about Zone of Interest. We are. That is my number one as well. And we will do a longer episode when this one comes out. 
Which I don't think it's actually got a release date yet. No, I don't think it does. So I, think it's, I think it's only just got a trailer. Mm, it has, yeah. The trailer dropped, I think, end of last week. Yeah, so I mean, one of those annoying ones that it's going to come out in March or something, yeah. isn't it? And it's like, because oh, I really want to see it again. I, I'm actually written up my review because, and I could write up my review now, but I want to watch it again before I write up a review. I read the book, and the book is, I mean, it's very, very different to the book. But what is this one? Because we didn't talk about it on the previous Zone of Interest is the latest film from Jonathan Glazer. His first since Under the Skin, a decade ago. That's right. And it's um, about this uh, family in um, 1940s Germany. And, you know, their everyday life and the the, the dad's troubles at work. Um, It just so happens that the the dad is the commandant at Auschwitz and the family live next door. Yes, that's right. So to be really, really pedantic is 1940s Poland. Yes, and it's Poland. Well, you know, at that point it was Germany. It's it controversial. So I retract that. I retract that. <laughs> no, they did have a name for it. It was Moravia. I can't remember what it was now. But yes, they did. It was Annex Poland. You're right. Yeah, this one is about the Commandant of Auschwitz and it portrays the horrors of the Holocaust through sound only, really. You and, see, and implication, yeah. And implication by, yeah, that's right, yeah, by extension. It is amazing. It is incredibly disturbing because of the incongruity of what you're seeing with what you're hearing and what you know is going on. And it is an incredibly disciplined film in terms of what it wants to show, how it conveys just the minutiae of the Holocaust in terms of the amount of theft that was going on. Everything is up for grabs and the way that people can reconcile what they're doing with how they're living, it is brilliant. Even though you don't see anything, he doesn't depict any of the atrocities, there are images in there that are very, very disturbing. I mean, um, there's also yeah. just, I think, when you're talking about that kind of horror implication, there's just one shot in there, which is just of a rose bush. Mm. And I was so tense. This is an innocuous detail, and I'm absolutely just riveted. <laughs> it's got the Mika Levy score, and which is great, and it's and it's not actually used that much, but it's just used to punctuate a few moments, and that's is really good. But we'll talk about it at length when it comes out. But it's it was such a good movie that when the year that that comes out, I would be astonished if that is not my film of next year. Yeah, indeed, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like if that isn't the film of next year then there's going to be an amazing film <laughs> that's released like, next year. Yeah, it's like, you know, if I had to talk about probably one film from the decade so far that's like that's going to make top of the decade list, it'll be Zone of Interest. And can you imagine if this time next year we're saying, yeah, Zone of Interest is currently my seventh best film of the year. <laughs> Heavens. <laughs> the world may be falling apart, but it would be a good year for film. The best year for film? The best year for film ever, yeah. <laughs> like, oh yeah, the seventh film on my list is a masterpiece. That was very good. It's very different to the book, but we'll get into that when we talk about the film but the film but it's it's a very good adaptation of the book as well because you can't film the book but what he does with the book i thought was brilliant so yes now one of the things that was really good about zone of interest was that the audience was very very respectful when we watched it um and that wasn't always the case at the london film festival it had to be said and to be completely honest rob i'm really wondering if i even bother going next year because I just am fed up with audiences at cinemas. It's like, these were press and industry screenings, and I had to tell a couple of people to turn off their phones, there were people talking. Um, there was the woman sat next to you in the, with the seat. Yeah, one of the films I haven't talked about is called One Life, which comes out on the 4th of January. Oh, that's not even the screening I, I meant. Oh, what was that one? Was it Flower Moon? The, per- the bo- Oh my God, there was this woman who 
would not stop moving in her seat, but every time she moved, she banged her seat a lot. It just banged and banged and banged. And it's one of those things where it's like, if I ask her to try and be a bit quieter and she takes great offence, then we're here for three and a half hours. <laughs> so it's like, for fuck's sake, what is it with adults that can't sit still? Not even can't sit still. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's at the picture house, you know, very nice, but, the, you know, the chairs, they do go, you can sit back in them. But if you do that and then you sit abruptly forward, the chair bangs forward. And it's yeah. like, you just think that you'd be like, well, I don't want that to happen because that's clearly going to be disruptive. Yeah. Just not a thought process this person had. No, indeed. Literally like someone was banging the wall right next to you. And she wasn't... Because I'm sure that there are some people thinking, well, she might have had an infirmity or something like that. No, she was... She was just a young person who really just wasn't aware or just didn't care that she was being disruptive. Yeah, that was annoying. Then in One Life, uh, which is the Anthony Hopkins film, he... Which I also didn't make it to. <laughs> That's right, Yes see the previous reason. Um, you don't have to see everything at the film festival, which is quite liberating when you realise that. This one is about Nicholas Winton. He was a stockbroker during the 30s who rescued a lot of refugee children, most of them Jewish children, from Nazi-occupied Europe before war broke out. And the film opens up with photographs of Jewish children. And that plays over the opening credits. It's a real scene setter for the movie. The woman next to me just decided that was the right time to get her phone out and start WhatsApping. So I told her in no uncertain terms to turn it off. And she was saying, well, the film hasn't started yet. The film hasn't started yet. It is literally playing now. She went, shh, shh. And it's like, you are being disruptive. Have some respect for the film and the audience. Shh, shh. Next time that happens, I am going to take the phone off the person and flush it down the toilet. I'm just going to say it now. <laughs> I don't care. I just don't well, care. Well, were you watching this from the balcony? Yeah then you don't have to get up and flush it down the toilet. You just frisbee it off the balcony. But, yeah, but then I might hit someone. <laughs> I did think that. You frisbee, like, I frisbee it towards I, the side. I was thinking that. I'd, these are all the things I thought. I mean, she did put it away, and then she kept, like, checking it in, in her pocket, and I couldn't see that. It's like, it was, like do, you ha- do you have a family member who's going into surgery? And also, I'm guessing you were sat near the front. You were sat at the front of the... Yeah. It's like... <sighs> It was an empty screening because it was a press screening in the Odeon Letter Square on a Thursday morning at eight o'clock. She could have sat elsewhere and not been disruptive, but she chose to sit at the front of the balcony that was that was full and get and, her phone out and get a phone out. Scum, subhuman scum. And then, of course, you have the queue jumpers. So we often stand in the queue for an hour to get into the film because there were people that turned up to Saltburn. Yes, an hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Rob. Sometimes. Well, actually, the Killers of the Flower Moon, I mean, we got there, what, about an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes before it started. So we were there about half six in the morning, and a queue had formed pretty much as soon as we got there. Because it's, you might not get in. I mean, there were people being turned away from Saltburn. But there are other people who think it's absolutely fine just to join the queue 10 minutes before the film starts. You just see them just walk up and just yeah, join it because they see their mate there. And it's one of the things where the LFF volunteers need to be empowered to tell people to move. Because I saw that happen right in front of a volunteer who saw it and didn't do anything. It's like, well, you clearly don't feel comfortable telling them to fucking get to the back of the queue. You should. Because now someone might not get in who has been waiting a lot longer. And the sense of entitlement that a lot of people in the press and industry audience brought uh, this year, I thought, I just don't know if I can be fucking asked for this anymore. I'm going to see all these films anyway. To be honest, I I sometimes think if you love film, you have to hate cinema now because the audience are terrible. 
And I think, well, I can have a better experience watching this at home. So when they talk about the death of cinema, I'm ambivalent in my feelings towards it. Um, although the IMAX is still great. <laughs> I mean, luckily we didn't have a repeat of that, anything like that experience recently. Well, yeah, because that takes us into... Um, is it one of those things where, am I just being... Because I know that I can be oversensitive about these things because I hate rudeness. Does it annoy you as well? No, it winds me up as okay, well. Okay, good. Because <laughs> it's like, am I just being oversensitive about this? And it's like, well, okay, so they've got their phone out a little bit to just have a look. Or they yeah, were shuffling in their seat or something, or they wouldn't stop sniffing or something like that. And it's like... There was, yeah, the guy, the guy sat next to me, was it Poor Things? It was, there definitely had a guy sat next to me in one. You did. Who just kept on sniffing. And I was like, I wonder how, like, you've clearly got a cold or something. But it's like, but it's just like every minute or so it was. <laughs> it's like, go to the toilet and blow your nose and get some toilet roll and bring it back with you. If you haven't got hankers on you. And I think I mean, I he, did, he did actually stop after a while. I was like. Exactly what I had with The Exorcist. There was this woman who came in late to a film that started half hour after the advertised time because it had an intro from Mark Kermode. Arrived late, but had enough time to get a really, really big Coke and popcorn. Sat down right next to me, which was annoying because I thought I got free seat next to me. And then sniffed for about half hour. And then I got COVID a few days later. So, you know, don't need to be Sherlock Holmes to work that one out. I know when I go to cinema, I think... I try and be as still as possible. One, because I'm watching the film, but also because I'm aware that I'm not in my front room. Oh, anyway. Anyway, so yeah, I'm just thinking, do you know what? I'm going to see these films anyway. Is there any fucking point going to these things anymore? Um, and it is ten days of holiday. And it is... Right, eight, days, eight days of holiday. Yeah, and it is. It is eight days of holiday. So, you know, there is that as well. I'm thinking, well, I could be just doing other things right now. So we'll see. Because it has to be said, this was a good year for the London Film Festival as well. I mean, the top three films, the zone of interest... Poor Things and May December were five-star films for me. It's like, well, that's not bad. You saw three five-star films at the LFF this year. Yeah, and I'm still umming about whether I'm going to pay to go next year. Anyway, that was a moan. <laughs> so let's have an even bigger moan now about going into Five Night at Freddy's and, well, regular listeners who listen to The Meg 2 <laughs> would have heard us talk about the single-cell amoebas that were sitting a couple of rows behind us. I think it might be partly that cinema. I think it, I think it is. I think it was Odie in Tottenham Court Road, yeah. Yeah, and it was also the same screen we saw it in as well. And it was, and it has to be said, like, yeah, the Meg 2 and Five Night at Freddy's, you're not going to get an Oppenheimer audience there. But these people, I think, are sometimes just forgot there was a film actually happening in this room. They were talking so much. But anyway, I've talked a lot. So I would see you in terms of what you thought of the audience. <laughs> um, the film is on some level about child murder and that I came out feeling ambivalent about child murder. Yes. <laughs> That's a very good point. It's like... I'm not sure who's the baddie in that film now. <laughs> I mean, like, maybe one of the movies wouldn't shut the fuck up at the cinema. Like, <laughs> so they would be you know, driven off down a country lane and um, and the right thing was done. To give our, well, to give my view of the film, because you need to say what you said to me after we saw, after the film had finished. But to give my view of the film, it was about half hour in that I thought, no, this isn't being ruined by them. This is just a bad movie. What did you say when the film ended and the credits were rolling? What did I say? I'm trying to remember. Oh, Rob. <laughs> I'm trying to give you stuff to talk because I always, I always feel guilty. You tell, about me, what I, you tell I me what I said and then I'll repeat it. Okay. <laughs> you turned to me with a look of genuine concern on your face and said, I don't think I've got enough for a pod in that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I said, we've got at least 10 minutes. So what is Five Nights at Freddy's? Five Nights at Freddy's is based on a video game 
about this security guard who has to man the um, security room at an abandoned children's kind of themed diner. Yes, yeah, it's, it's like a pizza, like Chuck E. Cheese. That's it. Yeah. And is uh, hunted by murderous animatronics. And this is a film version of that. The because it's called Five Nights at Freddy's has the same mechanical storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> is doing it a favour, I think. Because mechanical suggests that something's moving and something's working. To... Like, you could just tell it was the screenwriter trying to figure out what happened on each of the five nights a lot of the time. And there was one point when I thought, oh, why wasn't this just called One Night at Freddy's? We're going to go through five nights of this. So the security guard is played by Josh Hutchison, who most people will know from The Hunger Games, right? I know him from Future Man, which was this amazing series made in about 2018, ran for three seasons, and he plays this kid who's very good at this video game. It turns out that this video game is something from the future, and they are looking to see who is the best player of this who can then go forward into the future to help them in a war that could destroy humanity, but they need him to save humanity. So the people that come back to get him explain this to him, and he says, oh, right, so it's a bit like Last Starfighter meets Terminator then. (laughs) There's a lot of things like that in there. But then it gets into the moral and quantum mechanical implications of time travel (laughs) and has some of the best thought experiments that I've seen in any mainstream series ever. There is one episode that is unbelievable in terms of If we keep repeating this, what does this mean in terms of this, 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 and this? It's kind of stuff that's been done in Rick and Morty as well, but this I thought was actually done better, and it gets referred to in the next season in terms of other things that have happened. It goes off into many, many different sorts of territories, and it's brilliant, and it's underseen. Future Man is great. It was on Amazon Prime. It's worth looking to see if it's still there. It's about, I don't know, 28 episodes, something like that. It's really good. I watched one Hunger Games film and just didn't, and thought this is a very, very thin, weak rip-off of Battle Royale. I would always prefer to watch that. So, and I don't actually remember him in it. But I've always thought he was great because of Future Man. He tries in this. I mean, he tries with a nothing character. What was his name again? Was it, I don't know, Martin or something, was it? Mike. He plays Mike. Ah, oh, he plays first draft name. Well, actually, that's a very good point because Wesley Strick, the writer of Cape Fear, when I name drop, interviewed him for the Cape Fear book that I wrote, said, little screenwriter tip, never give your character a long name. If you give them a name like Elizabeth, you're going to have to type that. Yeah. <laughs> Mike is a good screenwriter's name. Mike, there you go, so easy to type. <laughs> but actually, but there is a female support character in this film called Vanessa, played by Elizabeth Lally. No, Lale, sorry. And Vanessa's quite a long one to type, so they did try in some ways, just not with the actual story. Anyone thinking that sounds like a familiar plot, it's like, yeah, you probably, if you saw the Nick Cage film Willy's Wonderland, then you've seen this film. And that film was told in 85 minutes and was dull and needed a bit more story until you see Five Night at Freddy's and realise, oh no, when you put more story in it, it's just dull at 109 minutes. <laughs> it's, like, it's almost like you should be focusing on the scares. So true. What were your main issues with this film? There's just nothing. It's not... <laughs> particularly scary it's not particularly funny Mm. it's got this character arc based on trauma and going back into trauma that 
I mean, we, we need to do a spoiler section on this just so I can be a little bit more sarcastic. Um, we can do, but I'm, I'm just going to say what it's about. So, yeah, Mike is haunted by the abduction of his brother when he was a kid and has a recurring dream about it and is trying to teach himself how to analyse his dreams for clues as to what happened to his brother. It's like, really? That's the character story in your film about killer animatronic fuzzy animals in a pizzeria (laughs) based on a video game. And he's got a younger sister. Called Abs. Called Abs. Or, yeah, Abby, but it's also Abs. There's a scene where they're having dinner and Abs um, asks for some more soup and he goes into the kitchen and he puts the saucepan on and he's about to stop making soup and he has to go back through. And I thought, well, he's, he's left the saucepan on. He's gonna, it's going to burn. Something's going to happen. Never go back to the soup. Never return to it. As far as I know, that saucepan is, soup is still on. <laughs> the saucepan is still on the stove. That fucked with me more than anything else in the film. I Literally, I've just got... I've just got a note that says, and I'll show it to Rob now. Soup! (laughs) Question mark, exclamation mark. (laughs) Yeah, because it's just a very good... I mean, yeah, it's not the most original visual touch in the world, but to show that soup boiling over would be an expressionistic way of showing character emotion. Or even Um, just... I don't even think he put the soup in the pan. I think he just put the pan on. (laughs) Okay, so they're going to burn a hole in the bottom of the the pan. pan. Oh my god, you've ruined a pan. And as it's made very clear, because there's a whole custody thing around who's going to have guardianship of Abby, he's broke. He can't afford a new pan. That You could actually not be able to make soup anymore because you haven't got a pan because you burnt a hole in it because it's still on the stove. I mean, apparently it's a very, in terms of the details, it's a very faithful recreation of the game, which I'm sure... I think it, like, at least in the physically, you know, in the spaces, right. which so I'm sure that. the kids behind us probably have played it and might, that might have been one of the things they were talking about yeah. there were certain times when they were very quiet and it's like really, is this holding your attention now because I can't see why this bit's holding your attention more than the bit where you were just chopsing through the whole of it little, little man in your head having to turn the crank again to wind you up <laughs> yeah indeed to engage your brain you fucking morons okay for me before we get into spoilers and if I'm talking too much then let me know but uh, yeah five laborious nights at Freddy's It just seemed to me that the film was two different scripts. I have never played the game. I don't know anything about the game. I, to be honest, could not be asked to look up the game. So I think, well, I'm not reviewing the game. We're just doing the film on its own merits. It seemed as if this was two different scripts that were put together. It seemed as if Emma Tammy, who is the co-writer on this and the director of this movie, and we'll get to her in just a minute, had written a horror film that she couldn't get made. And her agent said, well, you can probably artlessly grafted onto this Five Night at Freddy's script and to be honest you need another movie because it's been about four or five years since your last movie and this is a franchise so therefore this might get you a bit more exposure than your last movie and she said all right then yeah let's do that let's put this story about child abduction and trauma and custody battles into this what should be a knockabout romp about killer animatronic fuzzy um, animals on the rampage and the child abduction in the pizzeria is in the game oh god is... right so that's in the game then then I don't know what... <laughs> I don't know what Emma Tammy brought to the film then <laughs> oh my god so, that, so that's actually credibility yeah on the poster until you see the film because I said the only reason that we did this film is because Emma Tammy did a film called The Wind and The Wind is a horror film set in the old west and It's a gothic horror. It is a revisionist Western told from a female point of view. It is 
I think, the best film I saw in 2019, even better than The Irishman. It runs a swift 85 minutes, so I was thinking, okay, right, so this will be like, yeah, about 90 minutes. This is this was 109 minutes Five Night at Freddy's. But the thing is, The Wind, it's a brilliant film, but it's a five-star film, and there's so much going on in it. It's such a confidently made film. It has such a vision to it. And I'm now thinking, well, how much of that was Theresa Sutherland, the writer of the film? But no, the film was very well made. It was The performances were great. It was The director was doing their job that day. Five Night at Freddy's is like, this is just a bulk standard horror film. There was a, there's a shot in it of a, in, in Friday Nights at Freddy's of the wind blowing in the trees that made me laugh a lot. <laughs> I didn't even pick up on that. I was so numbed by the mediocrity I, of this movie. Like, oh, look, it's the wind. <laughs> <laughs> Which I was watching the wind again right now. Which I was watching poor things. Which I was watching anything else apart from this movie. Not just because of the audience. And that was where it's like, no, it isn't the audience. This is just a bad movie. All right, so it's not two scripts that are grafted together then. That whole thing about him and his sister, is that in the film? Is no, that the I, think, I think in the game he is a cipher. Right, okay. But there's a child abduction thing. Yeah, that right, that's in the... Okay. Um, well, we'll get onto that in spoilers, but um, yeah, you were talking about the inconsistency of the continuity with the soup and stuff like that. It's worth pointing out, because it's like, well, yeah, that is just... Well, well, at one point, one of the animatronics suddenly has a damaged eye. Yes. And I was like, is there a cut scene? Obviously there was, yeah. Indeed, yeah. I managed to pick up on that, but that was very, very well spotted because it's like, God, was the first cut of this two hours 15 or something? Because that would have been interminable. And the characters were so inconsistent. Like the Vanessa character, who plays a local cop who kind of checks in on Mike over the five nights. I mean, she's all over the place. And I thought, well, yeah, very good to Elizabeth Lael to try and give some consistency to this character, but the script is just... What is her character? But simultaneously, even, you know, and I don't know if she's in the game and I don't know if she has the same backstory, and, but it's like, it's one of those where it's like, I know every single plot beat that's going to happen in this. There was actually one that I didn't know that we'll talk about in spoilers, but um, I thought, okay, right, well, yeah, okay, fine. That's, I didn't know that. But yeah, there were some things here where it's like, oh, some people might know more about this than they're letting on, et cetera, et cetera. But the whole dream thing was like, well, this is a bit like Inception now. But you're not going wild with any of this. And it's a PG-13 in the States. It's a 15 here still because it is quite intense. It's too intense for a 12. PG-13 in the States. And that must have been contractual. So, well, no, this needs to be much gorier. This needs to be a splatterfest because it needs to be really wild to make this interesting. Because as you said, the big fuzzy animatronics, they're not funny enough and they're not scary enough. You need to add lashings of gore into this to keep the interest because... Right now, it is just dull. And it seems cut. It seems self-censored. Like, as if there should be more gore, but you decided you didn't want to do that. You wanted to bring it back a bit, which, of course, I think was imposed on them by saying, we need to have a PG-13. Yeah, like, this should be early Peter Jackson. Yeah, absolutely. And it should be funny. This wasn't funny. It was, like, too involved in trauma and terrible memories of your younger sibling yeah, being I th- abducted. I think the only intentional laugh, and it wasn't a big one, it involves the lawyer who's, sudden, who's just basically perpetually away with the fairy. It just looks like he's... Oh, you know, yes, that's right. And then suddenly realises he shouldn't be privy to a conversation. <laughs> There's one good thing where, yeah, there is a lawyer involved in a custody suit who says, I, I, I can't hear any of this. Stay where you are. <laughs> and it was good to see Matthew Lillard. He has a cameo in it as a guidance counsellor. He's... Well, 
it's weird because he was called a guidance or a careers counsellor, which yeah. I think is their equivalent of the person who works in the job centre, right? Yeah. It's just like, you know, good to see him. So I haven't seen you in years and you're ageing pretty well. Yeah, fine. Well, that was nice. That was nice to see you, Matthew Lillard, in that scene. Fine. <laughs> but they're too big to be scary because there are lots of good horror films about dolls and puppets, but they tend to be small, right? I mean... They got- can skitter. Absolutely. You've got the Stuart Gordon film Dolls. You've got things like Magic, the Ventrilo... I mean, there's a whole subgenre of ventriloquist dummy films, like yeah, Dead of Night and Magic and Dead Silence was a more recent one. And it's like, dolls are inherently scary, but when they're really big, they just become like cosplaying Terminators. Mm, that's not very scary, is it? So, yeah. Ugh. Actually, no, there's one other thing we should say. Uh, I think that Piper Rubio, that was her name, yeah, as Abby, she was good. Mm. She actually brought a bit of a levity to the film that all the other actors seemed, well, they did miss and seemed to not realise should be there. Like, they're all playing it so intense. Well, the, fact the, fact, in... the fact the lead character is a depressed insomniac dealing with... He's not insomniac, is he? He's, um... Well, yeah. Uh, well, he's kind of like forced narcolepsy, yeah, isn't forced, he? For, yeah. <laughs> because he keeps wanting to have this dream so he can try and look for clues. But Piper Rubio, she just seemed to realise, yeah, this needs to be played a bit lighter. It's like, well, she's literally about 10 years old, right? Why does she understand this film better than all the adults and the director? Oh, and three writers on this film as well. But it was one of those where it was like Scott Cawthon, Seth Kudabak, and Emma Tammy. And you think of all, and Emma Tammy probably means that she tried to add... Well, they, I mean, are they game writers? No, no, you're right, actually. Scott Cawthon seemed to be the writer of the game... Then you've got Seth Kudabak and Chris Lee Hill. It all is very, very tortured, to be honest, because you've got Seth Kudabak is the screenplay by, Chris Lee Hill is screen story by. <laughs> Get the impression this was knocking around for ages and loads of people did it, and I just want to know how Willis Wonderland just managed to rip off this story and not credit it, but anyway. And don't watch Willis Wonderland, it's not good. Go and watch The Wind, that's great. <laughs> anyway, question before you, uh, for you before we get into spoilers. You were supposed to go and see Thelma Schoonmaker, Martin Scorsese's editor that night. (laughs) And you had a ticket for her. Go and see a screen talk at the BFI. Because you're lovely, you then decided, and also it has to be said because the BFI do put the entire screen talks up onto YouTube so you can watch it later, but you had a ticket for it. But because you're lovely, you said... I'd rather go watch Five Night Fred is with you. It, 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 it Did was, you ever regret that when you were watching it, well, thinking, I could be watching Thelma Screenmaker and I'll talk about editing movies with Mike Scorsese? Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a, a little bit of a little. Um, but there, there, there is also <laughs> the fact that, given that it's, a, I think it's in conversation with, there would probably have been a Q&A component. Okay, and go which, on, why is that problem? Because they're always fucking excruciating. They are. Hi, I've got a question, but it's not so much a question as a statement, and it's not so much a statement as it is a thesis. Indeed. And it's like, the first sentence that you say should have a rising intonation. Yeah, that's right. So I'm going to talk now for six unbroken minutes and refuse to give the microphone back. I hate Q&As. For every one decent question, there are, I would say, at least 15 that are like, oh, Jesus Hi, we actually met years and years ago. This is not about you! It's not about you. You are a delivery mechanism for a hopefully interesting... I mean, the best, the best, in all fairness, 
years ago going to a, a conversation with Arnold Schwarzenegger and this little kid got up this kid got up now let's say a little kid probably like 10 maybe slightly older was absolutely clearly absolutely terrifying you know terrified you know hot without the mic and he was he, I think he prepped a question but he just ended up like being like what do you think of Die Hard and it's like if that had come from an adult it would have been excruciating the fact that it came from this nervous child was actually very sweet <laughs> and the fact that Arnie dealt with it by being like well you know it's, it's good. I like Bruce as a friend <laughs> Yeah, when he told that story, I thought it was like an 18-year-old. Oh, right, so it's like a 10-year-old. I've got and a he sim- might have been older than that. I've just downgraded his age in my head. <laughs> <laughs> to make it more bearable. Yeah, the only time that there should ever be a Q&A is when kids are asking the questions. Because at Mary Poppins Returns, which friend of the podcast, Adrian's out, was very, very nice to take me to. It was BAFTA screening. It was full cast and crew, basically. I mean, it was there were so many people there. It was great. At the Cineworld IMAX, that's a square. And... The film's great. It's like, oh, I'm so happy that the sequel to Mary Poppins is a lovely, great movie. And this a young lad who was about 10 said, yeah, this is a question for Meryl St... Um, uh... Thingy. <laughs> he couldn't remember a surname. And the entire audience laughed. Not in like... Not in like a mocking way. But no, like but a... they laughed. It's like, um, Thingy. And then the question was, why did you want to get into acting? Or why did you become an actress? Of course, that's, I mean, it's like, she's been asked that a lot. And she was lovely about it because she said, well, first of all, can I just say that is a brilliant question. And thank you so much for asking it. I thought, oh, God, Strip, you're so brilliant. And then she gave a very, very nice answer to it. I still feel a bit guilty, though, that you came to see Five Night at Freddy's rather than going to see Thelma Schoonmaker talk about editing films in Martin Scorsese. But anyway. <laughs> Decisions were made. Decisions were made. Right, well, let's get into spoilers then. So we'll play a bit of the trailer and then we'll be in spoilers. But before we uh, get into spoilers, let's do plugs. Mr. Daniel, if our listeners are looking for you online, where can they find you? Well, thank you for asking. Um, if you want to follow me on Instagram, then you can do that at robdan75 on Instagram. You can also follow me on Letterboxd, along with my mate Martin Scorsese, who has just joined Letterboxd, it turns out. So I will definitely be following him. You can follow me on Letterboxd at letterbox.com slash robdan. If you want to read my writing, that is at electric-shadows.com. If you've liked what you've heard here today and want to listen to Rob and myself and a bunch of wonderful guests talk about that wonderful 1986 movie Highlander, then you can do that on a podcast called Another Time McLeod, which is available wherever you listen to this, and, uh, yeah, you can also drop us a Highlander-themed email at whowantstopodforever at gmail.com. Yes, yeah, so we might have uh, another episode of that coming out in a couple of years. <laughs> now that they <laughs> Might we? <laughs> yeah, now that um, the, the remake is definitely going ahead. It's in deadline <laughs> yesterday. Apparently it's going to be, I think it might be even like Henry Cavill's next project. We'll see how that goes. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> and how about you? Um, yeah, if you're looking for me online, uh, you can find me on Letterboxd at, I think, uh, Robert M. Wallace. Um, you can also find my writing, such as it is, at of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast and you would like to drop us an email, you can do so at moviebrobcast at gmail.com. Yes. And yeah, and again, if you have enjoyed, please do rate and review. It's... um. Lovely to get the feedback, and it does, um, yeah, bumps up a bit in the algorithm. It does indeed. Oh, and yeah, I was got um, we're on we're on Instagram as well at at the movie Robcast. We are indeed. Right. Well, shall we get into spoilers for Five Night at Freddy's? Yep. If you have seen the film or haven't and don't intend to, stay tuned. <laughs> it's going to be a pretty condensed burst of sarcasm, essentially. <laughs> yes, it is. That's right. 
So there's going to be some trailer, and then you're going to be in spoilers, and thank you for listening, and on with the spoilers. Where'd he go? And you're in the spoiler zone. So now we're going to talk about some spoilers for Five Night at Freddy's. Uh, what are your spoilers? Um, firstly, why does Mike go back after the break-in? And why is there not... Because he's like, well, you're here. What's he's, he's there to stop the place getting smashed up. The place has been smashed up. Yeah. Why does he not wonder why no one has come to shout him about yeah. the break-in? Why is he saying, well, I'm not meeting the owner. There seems to be no repercussions to the fact that there's been a break-in here. So what am I doing here? What is the point of this job? This all seems a bit weird. They're also definitely going to think he murdered his aunt. Yes. With whom he's in a custody dispute. And his little sister's going to go, no, it's one of the animatronics. And they're going to think that she's like either covering for him or repressing some trauma. Yeah. Um. So yeah, he's going to jail. That's right. Nothing gets resolved. He's still broke. He hasn't got a job. There's a dead body to deal with in terms of his aunt who was murdered in his house. But at the end... You still like, don't really find out what happened to his brother. Yeah, that, and that's the other thing is that... But let's get on to like, that is a really, really big one. But before that, it's like, nothing's been resolved here. But now it's because it's the end of the film, he gets to stay with his sister. Because that's just how we end a film because it's going to be a happy ending and it's not going to bum anyone out. Well, I'm bummed out by the amount of fucking questions I've got from all the loose ends here. So one of them being... To your point, okay, so because it turns out that all the animatronics are the ghosts of the kids that have been killed by the owner of the pizzeria, who was revealed to be... Matthew Lillard. Matthew Lillard, which actually I didn't see coming. Oh, I... Yeah, I was like, like, they're going to bring Matthew Lillard back into it. Right. I just thought he was like a Blumhouse one and done just to give the exposition, because they do that a lot. You get like, yeah, um, Vincent D'Onofrio will appear for a scene and will just set it in motion well, no, I, was, I was thinking like they're going to have to introduce him at the end they're going to have to introduce the villain at the end and either they introduce a random actor mm. or they just get Matthew Lillard to do it and that kind of makes it a nefarious plan so because we have seen a film that has just had a random actor in it recently with The Expendables 4 where you realise oh because it then gets revealed that someone else is the is the villain blah blah blah, blah. yeah and it doesn't really satisfy when it's just a random actor oh and Vanessa's his daughter yes indeed yeah yeah, that was, I thought, okay, right, that was quite a nice surprise that Matthew Lillard is in it again and he's the baddie. And yeah, so I should have seen that coming maybe if I'd have engaged a bit more, but okay, fine. <laughs> but yeah, I'm glad I didn't because it was a nice surprise in a film that has had no surprises in it. Um, apart from the fact that this is Emma Tammy's next movie after the wind. But that whole thing about, okay, so the ghosts of dead children are powering these animatronic fuzzy animals. And sometimes they're nasty and sometimes they're good, dependent on what the film needs at that particular moment. There's no consistency to any of this. That might be in the game that you might be able to control them to do things you want them to do. But uh, a game is different to a uh, Yeah, I think, I think I think their, their, their reasoning is like, oh, whenever he's around, he exerts his malign influence on them or wherever they're, whenever they're attacked. Basically, as you say, it's just to make them do whatever you want them to do. His brother who I guess was just regular child murdered. Yeah, because his brother isn't one of the animals, because you're waiting to see, well, which one's his brother? When's he going to have that moment where he realises he's looking at his brother, mm. who's now a big, scary, in inverted commas, monster? Oh, that doesn't happen in the film. 
well, then why have we spent so much time with him trying to find his brother and find out what happened to his brother? Because as you said, you don't really find out. Yeah. <laughs> it does feel like Netflix, doesn't it? It does. It really does feel like... It actually feels like the kind of thing that would just be dropped onto Amazon Prime or Netflix. It doesn't feel like a film that is good enough to get a cinema release, to be honest. Not when we've had a lot of films that were good enough to get a cinema release that then didn't. Yeah, we live in a world where Prey, the Predator movie, didn't get a cinema release. Anyway, that was that. That was rubbish. So the next one... We'll have a think and see what we're going to come back with next time. Until then, uh, thank you very much, Mr. Daniel. And thank you very much. And thank you very much for listening. And we'll be with you again very soon. Don't see Friday Night Freddy's. <laughs> there are ghost children possessing giant robots. <laughs> Thanks for the heads up. Technically, they're animatronics. What do they want? They want to make her like them. Baby! Tell me how to stop them. <laughs> it's too late.